invite you to turn in Scripture to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. We're going to study this chapter together this morning. Genesis chapter 32. And if you want to keep a finger there, and then also turn all the way into the New Testament, uh, Mark chapter 10. I'm going to spend just a moment there because I think it illustrates what we see in Genesis 32. In Mark chapter 10, we find um, Jesus encounters this young man known as the rich young ruler. He has a conversation with this young man regarding eternal things. And the young man asks Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you need to, uh, you need to sell everything that you got and come and follow me. And it troubles the young man because he was, again, very rich. He had a lot of possessions, and um, he leaned on the sufficiency of those possessions in this life to give him strength and to give him hope and confidence. And so what's interesting about this is what Jesus then says in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus here. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The picture Jesus paints in Mark chapter 10 is one of struggle against self-sufficiency. That's not just a word against the wealthy, although that was the context of that conversation then. But I think it's a word for all of us. We all struggle with that sense of standing on our own, that sense of self-sufficiency, or at least I hope that we do. But I fear that when we talk about the grace of God, when we look to God as the one who gives grace, I think sometimes we, some of us at least, have failed to wrestle with pride and self-sufficiency. But Jacob had indeed been wrestling with this throughout his whole life. In fact, his name meant deceiver and heel grabber. He had been heel grabbing his entire life. He had been trying to get a leg up on all of those around him through his own efforts and his own schemes. He had deceived his brother twice to get ahead in this world and in the process even deceived his own father. His family was broken. Jacob was broken even if he didn't realize it just yet. For 20 years, he worked with a deceiver just like himself. And in fact, he was deceived on several occasions. And then last week, we saw how he escaped under the veil of night with his family. He was seemingly a free man at this point. But although he was free from his evil uncle Laban and all of his schemes, he was still bound by a sense of self-sufficiency. You see, Jacob needed his eyes opened to his need for grace. He needed to see that grace is unearned. It is free. It is from the hand of God because of his mercy, and it is indeed liberating. But here's some good news for Jacob, and I think good news for us, and good news for the rich young ruler if he would have listened to Jesus back in Mark chapter 10. If you're taking notes today, here's the good news. God takes the initiative to open our eyes to our need for grace. God takes the initiative to open our eyes to our need for grace. 
We're going to see this play out in the life of Jacob, certainly, but I believe if we all listen carefully, all of us need to hear about God's grace as well. We need to remember that it's unearned. We need to remember that we can't stand alone. We need to remember that just as Jacob walked through this life, he needed grace, we also need that same grace. Now, we're going to dive into kind of the end of this chapter to a very mysterious part of this chapter. Don't read ahead because I want you to hold on to the mystery of what we see at the end of chapter 32. But it's really the culminating event of when Jacob is wrestling with his pride, his self-sufficiency, and God is showing him grace. I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. And we're going to look together at verses 24 through 26. It says there, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. God, that it's good. Lord, thank you that it's been good to me this week. Lord, I've learned things about grace this week that I had not learned before. And, and thank you for your word always being fresh and new. God, I pray that as we dive into this time together, that you'll continue to teach us and challenge us. God, that you will show us this grace today, Lord, not just so we can hold on to it tightly, but so that we can share it with others. Bless this time as only you can by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to walk through this chapter together and and journey with Jacob as he begins to see God's grace revealed to him in a new and fresh way. We will eventually get to this mysterious scene at the end of chapter 32, but we got to really set up what's going on there to appreciate it. And so let's walk through this journey with Jacob. First, we see this. Our brokenness exposes our need for grace. Brokenness is what shows us that we need grace to begin with. The problem is many of us haven't ever come face to face with our brokenness, but Jacob had. In fact, it was a very uh, tangible reality in his life. You see, at the beginning of this chapter, we find Jacob preparing to meet with his estranged brother Esau. Now, you remember when he left Esau before, this was back in Genesis chapter 27, There was this huge conflict. This was really uh, Jacob's premier act of deception, right? He stole his brother's birthright through deceiving him and his father. And see, it's from that that Esau becomes very angry with Jacob. And in fact, he threatens his life. and, And Jacob has to run for his life just into the wilderness all alone because of his deception. And so what we find at the beginning of this chapter is very interesting. You see, verse 3 tells us that Esau was located in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. Now, if you take a moment and you study the geography of that land and you realize that Jacob is supposed to be on his way back to meet with his father and reunite with his family, and then you look on a map and you see this place that's referenced here, you find that for Jacob to reconcile with Esau, this wasn't a geographical necessity. 
No, it was a heart necessity. You see, some people read this passage and at first glance you think, well, Esau's kind of standing between Jacob and his father. And, and to get to his father and reunite there, Jacob has to go through Esau to get there. No, but, but when you study a little more carefully and you look at a map and you begin to understand, wait a minute, Jacob was really going out of his way to reconcile with this estranged brother. You begin to see that Jacob had come face to face with his brokenness. In fact, for 20 years, perhaps, this broken relationship had hung over his head. Maybe you relate to that. Is there, is there anything in your life that you wrestle with, you struggle with? Reconciliation with another, perhaps, or maybe it's that, that error or that wrongdoing in your life, and you look back on that with shame. For Jacob, that's what was happening here, and he needed to deal with it, not because it stood in his way physically, but because spiritually it stood in his way. Jacob's had to, Jacob had to meet this reality head on because we can't escape our brokenness. We can't escape our brokenness. It, it, it's, it's always going to be in our way, and we have to meet that head on. And for Jacob, that had to be wrestled with. You see, in verses 4 and 5, we learn that Jacob decided to send messengers to express his intent to reconcile. And in fact, as he's sharing this intention to reconcile, he's using words like, I am your servant, Esau, and you are my master. But I want you to see what happens in verses 6, 7, and 8. Look at that with me. It says, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, the herds, and the camels. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can certainly escape. You see, in these verses, we see that Jacob was still a very flawed person. In fact, we, we see a few characteristics about him that are in keeping with everything that we've seen about him so far. In verse 7, it says that he was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, I want you to be clear on this. Jacob had good reason to be afraid. Because when it says that, that Esau was coming with 400 men to meet with him, that picture was one of uh, kind of uh, a military envoy. This would, would, would have been in keeping with a, a large military force in the Old Testament. That's the way Jacob would have heard this. And so, of course, he thought, well, Esau's coming to get me. He's out for my head. And so he was greatly distressed and afraid. But the brokenness is really seen in his response in verse 8. What a rotten scoundrel does something like what happens in verse 8. <laughs> he takes part of his camp and he divides it. And he sets it to the side and kind of as a decoy. And he says, wait a minute. If I put this camp between me and Esau and maybe he'll take them out thinking he's got me and he'll leave the rest of us alone. In other words, he was out to save his own skin, right? He was still very broken and very flawed. But what he missed is this idea of two camps. There's an irony here that Jacob would have missed, but us reading it now, we can see it. You see, in verse 7 it says he divides them into two camps. He remembered to see that God was the one who had already met with him. Now, I skipped verses 1 and 2 intentionally because it needs to be a reminder for us. Now, notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. 
Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. And so he called that place, and I'm not going to pronounce the Hebrew word there because here's what it means. He called that place two camps. So here's the situation. The same language is used here. Jacob had just met with God, these messengers of God, had his hope restored, and he had divided into two camps. And yet, ironically, when he is confronted with the Esau and his, his envoy coming at him, what does he do? He divides into two camps physically again. Instead of recognizing that God was with him, he had forgotten that God was with him. But, but despite all of this, despite all this brokenness in Jacob's life, notice this, God still meets us in our brokenness. You see, Jacob wasn't left alone in all of his flaws. And, and, and let's be honest, this has been the picture of God's grace all along for Jacob. Right? He had every, God had every reason to leave Jacob alone in his sin, in his brokenness, and to abandon him to his schemes. But instead, over and over again, God continues to show grace, continues to meet with Jacob in his brokenness. In fact, the, verse, the picture in verses 1 and 2 is a picture of God consistently being who he had always been. You see, 20 years earlier, when Jacob was fleeing from Esau, he met with two angels at Bethel. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 28 and you study the language there and the parallels there, you find that the language used about these two angels here is exactly parallel with what happens in Genesis 28. The picture is one of consistency. That God dealt with Jacob consistently when he was on the run for his life and even when he was desperately flawed here in Genesis 32. God dealt with Jacob the same. Listen, in our sinfulness and in our brokenness, we are constantly changing people. Listen, if you're like me, you're probably constantly changing your mind one moment to the next about what step you're going to take. But the picture in Scripture is one of God always being the same. God was still dealing with Jacob in the same exact way. There was grace that Jacob could count on back in Genesis 28 and even now in chapter 32. So here Jacob was in his brokenness. And he had already met with the Lord or these angels of the Lord. And so what he does next is truly fascinating. He prays in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. And here's what we see in these prayers. Our prayers express our need for grace. Our prayers express our need for grace. Now, in verses 9 through 12, we find the first recorded prayer from Jacob. And, and, and it represents his spiritual growth. But even more fascinating than that, before we look at this prayer carefully, we need to understand this is the longest recorded prayer in all of the book of Genesis. So this is a really pivotal moment, not just in Jacob's life, but also in the book of Genesis. And really what we see here is a model for prayer. You see, Jacob doesn't just voice this, this moment, in this moment of desperation, it's not just a desperate prayer, but rather it is a model for prayer. It is, in fact, the way that you and I should be praying, perhaps. I want you to see a few characteristics of Jacob's prayer that we can model in our own lives. First, in praise, 
we recognize who God is in relation to us. In praise, we recognize who God is in relation to us. I want you to listen to how Jacob does this in verse 9. Look at it with me. It says, Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Go back to your land and your family, and I will cause you to prosper. Notice what he does. He identifies who God is at the very beginning of his prayer. In other words, he makes it very clear who he is praying to. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, we know that they prayed to all sorts of gods. And so this is an important detail in Genesis, but it's also an important detail for us in relation to prayer. We pray to a very specific God. We pray to a very personal God. He is the Lord. And in fact, the, the picture here is not just one of God who is almighty, but also the Lord who is very personal. So practically, here's what this looks like in our lives. As you begin to pray, affirm who God is in your prayers. Affirm who he is. And here's what this does. It, it prevents us from seeing God as some sort of divine vending machine. You know what I'm talking about? You know when you come to the Lord and you say, Lord, this is what I need and I need it now. It forces you to slow down and recognize who it is you're praying to, who you're talking to. And this is what this looks like. Maybe this is how you would do this. You say, Lord, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in control of all things. You praise him for that. You, you open up with recognizing that he is almighty, that he is indeed all-powerful, that he's in control of everything in your life. And listen, what, that happens, what happens in your life when you do that, what happens in your prayer is it begins to give you peace immediately. But more than that, maybe you begin as you, in your prayers, you say, Lord, I know you saved me. I know you transformed me. I know that you've shown me grace. I know that you're personal. I know that you've never left me. Listen, in all of those things, you're praising God for who he is, but also you're recognizing who he is in relation to who you are. Maybe you point to some promises in Scripture, and you say, Lord, I know this is who you are, because your word says this is who you are. And that's what Jacob did. Didn't you hear him? He identifies God by name in verse 9, and then he says, this is what you said to me. You told me to go back. You told me to trust you. You told me to, to go back and reconcile it, and I'm doing exactly what you told me to do, and, 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 and I recognize who you are. I recognize who you are. But notice this, not just in praise, that's the first part of prayer, but in confession, we acknowledge our unworthiness before God. Listen to what Jacob does in verse 10. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. He acknowledges what God has done in his life. He, he acknowledges the life change that has taken place. Here, here's what we need to do in prayer. We don't just praise the Lord, but we come back to the Lord and we say, Lord, I know who I was. And by the way, I know who I still am. And before you move forward in asking God for anything, you begin to, to bask in his grace even then. You begin to recognize the grace that is still available for you. You confess those sins to, Lord, to the Lord. You slow down for just a moment to recognize that you are indeed a still very broken individual. And, and I'll be honest with y'all, sometimes this is as far as I get in my prayers. <laughs> 
Listen, I'll be praying. I'll say, Lord, I know who you are. I recognize who you are. I praise you for who you are. And then it might have been a really tough week. I might have been walking through something really difficult, and all I start doing is confessing to the Lord. And that's okay. Because guess what? It's in confession that we are transformed. That we begin to recognize that prayer is indeed changing us. Finally, in petition, we boldly ask God to move according to his will. So we praise him, we confess to him, and then we ask him. Most of the time we get that backwards, right? (laughs) We say, Lord, please help me. We barely acknowledge who he is before we move on to what we're asking him for. But instead, as we walk through Jacob's prayer, this model prayer, we see that he, he praised him, he confessed his unworthiness, and then he brought his petition. Notice what he does in verse 11. He finally gets to this. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I'm afraid of him. There's another moment of confession, by the way. He confesses to the Lord his emotions. Otherwise, he may come and he may attack me, the mothers and their children. And then he says in verse 12, you have said, I will cause you to prosper and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. Notice what he does. He says, Lord, this is again your word. I'm not asking for something that is contrary to what you've already said. I'm asking for something boldly because you said you would do it. Listen to me. Knowing God's word like Jacob did here allows us to pray boldly and confidently. Unfortunately, many of us don't know God's word. That's the truth. But when we know it, when we trust it, when we know that he has indeed made these promises to us, we then recite those back to him boldly in prayer. I'm going to tell you a prayer that I pray every single day. Lord, I want you to save the lost in our community. I want people to be saved. And here's what I say back to the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Lord, it's not your will that any should perish. God, I know that from your word. I know that you want all men to be saved, all men and women, boys and girls to be saved. Listen, Lord, I know that when I pray this to you, I'm not praying something that's outside of your will. Lord, I'm coming to you boldly and confidently and knowing that this will happen because your word says it will. But unfortunately, we walk blindly through trials and difficulties, not knowing his word, and therefore we can't pray boldly. And so we praise him in prayer, we confess to him in prayer, and then we bring our petitions to him. Now, spoiler, if you look at chapter 33, and we're going to get there next week, God does deliver Jacob and his family. Reconciliation happens, and it is absolutely beautiful. We're not going to get there this week. But here's what I want you to see is God's initial response to his prayer is very unique. You see, sometimes God answers our prayers in leading us to live wisely. Sometimes God answers our prayers in leading us to live wisely. You see, what happens in verses 13 through 21, I I really wrestled with a lot as I walked through this passage. Because what happens here is, is Jacob continues, it seems, to scheme And he puts together uh, this elaborate gift to send ahead of him to Esau. And in fact, when I was kind of talking through the sermon this week with uh, Cherie and kind of sharing where I was at on it, I think that's where I was when I talked to her. I said, man, this rotten guy, he never gets the picture. He continues to scheme even after he's prayed. And, And I continue to wrestle with that though. 
And instead of scheming, what we find here is Jacob is actually living wisely and he is living humbly. You see, what happens is he, he, he assembles this elaborate gift and he sends it ahead of him. But notice in verses 13 through 16, let me just read it to you, this picture that's painted. First of all, it says he spent the night. He spent the night there before he put together this gift. Don't read past that quickly. This was a long period of time in silence that Jacob waited on God's deliverance. And in that waiting, in that contemplation, I have no doubt that what happened next, God indeed impressed on his heart to do. Notice what it says. He took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. And then the gift is laid out there in verses 14 and 15. Verse 16, he entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds. And he said to them, I want you to go on ahead of me and leave some distance between me and the herds. And he told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And, and whose animals are these ahead of you? Then I want you to tell him this, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he's right behind us. So I want you to understand, this is a picture of absolute humility. This is a picture of a life that is absolutely transformed and changed. Because when you read this, in contrast to the Jacob we saw before, this is a vastly different individual. And so this is not Jacob scheming and conniving like he had before. No, he is responding to this situation in humility. He's walking through this situation with wisdom and saying, okay, maybe there's some things that I need to do in this, not just leaving all this up to God, but walking with the Lord through this, I can indeed do a few things that are wise. And so he sends this gift don't you remember in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon prayed for wisdom. And what did God do? He gave him wisdom. I want to encourage you to do that when you petition the Lord, when you come to the Lord with your requests. I, I know if you're like me, you, you walk through certain things and you want the Lord just to fix it. In fact, I have sat in my office and prayed there many times, Lord, just fix it. I don't know what it looks like, just fix it. But then I've learned to pray this, Lord, I, I know you're going to take care of this, but let me live wisely through it. Can you pray that way? Whatever conflict you're walking through, listen, just pray for wisdom. And we, we see pictures throughout Scripture where God gives wisdom generously, and I believe that although that might not have been what Jacob asked for, that is exactly what God gave to Jacob. So Jacob was beginning to understand grace, but the picture of grace was incomplete for Jacob because he had not yet spent time in the presence of God. He had been praying, but something else had to happen. Notice this, this last truth. His presence reveals his grace. In other words, his presence makes his grace plain and clear. You see, verses 22 and 23, uh, we see Jacob making some risky decisions, and he goes with his family across the Jabbok River at night. This was a terrifying picture. Uh, I was a novice trout fisherman at one point in time, pretty terrible at it. Uh, got the, the flies hung in the, the trees too much, so I gave it up. But I had a friend that took me trout fishing one time, and we were, we were out somewhere. I don't know where he had taken me, on the Hiawassee River somewhere. And fishing was safe because the water was crystal clear until it started getting dusky dark, and then you couldn't see your feet at the bottom of the, of the stream. Then it became very dangerous. 
That's exactly what happens at the Jabbok River for Jacob and his family. Understand, crossing this river in the daytime was treacherous, but at night it was even more treacherous. And, and what this paints for us is a picture of Jacob's desperate plea for grace. But, but notice what happens in verse 24. Jacob was left alone, it says. He was left alone. In the still of the night, with only the sound of that Jabbok River next to him. This was going to be the darkest night of Jacob's life as he pondered alone what the break of day might bring. Perhaps he thought, my brother Esau is hot on the trail. He's going to take my life tomorrow. This is the last night I'm going to spend on this earth. Perhaps he pondered his actions from 20 years earlier and, and recognized the, the error of his ways. And he had given all that to the Lord and said, Lord, if this is the way you take me, this is the way you take me. Uh, all of that is not recorded in Scripture here, but I think it's okay to read in between the lines and see that's exactly where he was. And then someone grabs him by the shoulder, a mysterious figure, and wrestles with him all night. Who was this person? That's the, the, the weighty question so many ask. Well, I have a belief and a, an opinion uh, based upon Scripture here that I want to share with you. I believe this was indeed God wrestling with him. Listen, God had shown up in pre-incarnate forms throughout the Old Testament. We see this happen throughout the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Very interesting picture we find there. Adam and Eve had sinned, and they were found in their sin, and it says there in Genesis 3 that they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Well, you can only hear a physical person walking in the garden. That can't be a spirit. It's a person. Genesis chapter 14, Abraham dined with Melchizedek, who was a mysterious priest from God. Hosea chapter 12 affirms that this is a divine being right here in Genesis chapter 32. And so don't wrestle with the mystery of this too much because Scripture affirms that it's God. A couple things I want you to see about what God teaches him about grace, though. First, grace redeems our past. That's the full picture here. Redeems our past. Notice what happens. Verse 27. What is your name? The man asked, which a lot of people get tripped up on that. and They say, well, wait a minute. If this is God, <laughs> then why is he questioning what is your name? Well, it wasn't because he didn't know his name. It's because he wanted him to say his name. Notice what he says. Verse 27, Jacob, he replied. He didn't give an elaborate response. In saying Jacob, here's what he confessed to him. I'm a deceiver. <laughs> I'm manipulative. I'm a heel grabber from birth. I, I'm a rotten scoundrel. That's all he had to say in a name. And that's exactly what this mysterious figure heard. Listen, it was a moment of confession of who he had been. It wasn't that God didn't know him. God knew him. Listen, Jesus does this throughout his, the Gospels as well, right? Jesus asked certain questions, not because he didn't know what the answers were, but because he wanted people to confess to him their position in life. That's exactly what's happening with Jacob. But here's what he does. Notice what it says in verse 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel. Because you have struggled with God. There again, there's that affirmation of who this person is. You've struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. He gives him a new name. And in doing so, he redeems his past. 
You know, a lot of people think about forgiveness as if you, you got like a, a marker board or a, an old blackboard, we'll say, okay? You got a blackboard and, and all your sins are written on that blackboard. And, and forgiveness is simply someone coming along, the Lord coming along, and, and, and erasing the sins that are on that blackboard so you can have a fresh start. No, the picture here is not that. The picture here is taking the blackboard and just throwing it out the window altogether and forgetting about it. That is redemption. That is a fresh start. And that's exactly what happens in Jacob's life. This is a transformative moment in his life because his past was redeemed. But secondly, grace restores our future. In verses 29 through 32, listen to this picture. It says, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. And then in verse 32, there's this kind of epilogue. Notice what it says. That is why even still today, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Now, you say, well, why is that included there? That sounds really obscure and really bizarre. Here's why it's included. Anytime you find something in Scripture where it says, and still today, this is how it's referred to. And still today, this is what this place is called. Listen, what that's a picture of is God's sustaining grace. It's a picture of a hopeful future. Because here's the picture, still today and yet even beyond today, this is why we do this. Listen, Jacob had been given a new future, a new identity. Jacob still didn't know the name of this figure, but we know the name of this figure as Jesus. The face that Jacob could not see, we now see in Jesus. But the grace that Jacob came to know, we have available in Jesus. Brother and sister, I, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with self-sufficiency before. That tendency to just stand on your own. But if you haven't, I encourage you to reconsider that in light of God's grace. God's grace is not earned, it is freely given. We don't deserve God's grace. Instead, he gives us what we don't deserve, his love and his mercy. So here's my encouragement to you. Listen, I understand many of the people in the room today, most of you are believers. I encourage you to take this treasure of grace and share it with others. Take this treasure of grace and don't hold tightly to it, but instead share it with others and the grace that you know they can also know. But if you don't know this Savior, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know this mysterious figure that wrestled with Jacob, listen, today is the day you can know him. You can know him more intimately than Jacob did because he can be your Savior. Would you stand with me as we pray?